Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. The the ancient Greeks uh, were were great at uh, literature and astronomy and astrology and all the things they were they were really far beyond what they should have been capable of during their time. Some of the the inventions that the ancient Greeks uh, came up with have actually made our lives better even today. And these inventions that they came up with, they were, they were revolutionary for their time. For instance, the ancient Greeks invented the alarm clock. Now, how many of y'all are grateful that the ancient Greeks invented the alarm clock? Uh, a couple of you, uh, and the rest of us are like, you're crazy. Uh, they also invented the uh, odometer to tell how far you have gone. You know, that little odometer on your car that tells you you've gone, you know, uh, if you're like me, 387,000 miles in your vehicle, uh, but it still goes. And say, why do you drive it? Because it still goes. Uh, but it tells you how far you've gone. They also invented the, the overhead crane. Uh, and so these, these are inventions that they came up with that were, they were revolutionary for their time. But they have, they have made our lives today a lot better. They also came up with an invention um, that, of course, we, we still use today, uh, because around, and they came up with about 400 B.C., and during this time, of course, most of the world had not yet been explored. Uh, and so a lot of people in Greece uh, and those, that area, they were, they were going to the sea, they were looking for other lands, for other uh, trade routes, for other people that they could go, and, of course, they were looking for more people they could go and conquer, uh, but so they, they were a seafaring people. And if you've ever been on a boat, um, you know that, you know, whether it's a, a pontoon boat on the lake or a speedboat or a sailboat, that, you know, you, you have a, a way of moving. You know, whether it's, it's a gas-powered motor today, they, they did not come up with a motor, with a gas-powered motor. I mean, they didn't do that. But whether a, a sailship or a rowboat, you know, you, you have whatever you need to propel you, to move you. But then you come to a point where you want to stop. And you can't just take the sail down or turn off the motor or pick up the oar and expect to stay there. You're going to drift. And so what the ancient Greeks came up with was a, a huge flat stone. They drilled a hole through it. They tied a rope around the stone. They tied another end of the rope around their ship. And when they got to a place they wanted to stay... They would throw the rock overboard, and it would keep them in that location. Of course, it's an anchor. So the ancient Greeks came up with the, the, the anchor. They invented the anchor. And the, the purpose of an anchor is to keep the ship from drifting. They wanted to stay in one location, whether they were fishing whether they were off the shore of an island and they were taking some people onto the island through smaller boats for whatever purpose, they wanted to keep the boat from doing what it would naturally do, and that is drift. We as believers, uh, we, in our relationship with God, in our walk with Christ, we have a natural 
tendency to drift. To drift from our love of God, to drift from our relationship with God. And look, drifting doesn't look like outright rebellion. You know, we can look at someone who is living a, a sinful life, who is completely going against the Word of God and the will of God, and we can say, oh, they're drifting. From God. No, that's not drift. They've already drifted. So drifting isn't waking up one morning and saying, I'm just going to, you know, forget God, forget church, forget His Word. I don't care. I don't believe in Him. I'm going. That's not drifting. That's rebellion. And if you've gotten to that point, you've been drifting for a while. So drifting doesn't look like uh, outright rebellion. Drifting looks like, you know, we're times where we've, we've, we've focused on our relationship with God. We've focused on the love that God has for us, the grace of God. And we're, we're really, you know, we're diving into God's word. We're, we're praying to God. And as we pray to God, we feel his presence. We feel him speaking to our hearts. But then life starts to happen. We get busy. Maybe hurt comes. Maybe a difficulty comes. And we take our focus off of Christ. We take our focus off of walking with him. And we end up drifting from God. See, drifting can look a, a lot of diff, can look like a lot of different things. Drifting can look like taking the grace of God for granted. Not thanking, because a lot of times, you know, in our prayer life, and this is a year of prayer, and we've been focused on prayer, and we've been teaching about prayer. But one of the things we understand, there are a lot of aspects to prayer. Prayer is, you know, I've told you, prayer is not. You know, going through a list, prayer is talking to our Heavenly Father, but there's aspects of that prayer we have to have. Yes, we have to have uh, at where we, we request, where we go to God and say, God, here's my burden, here's my care, Lord, this is what I'm asking for. But there's also, in our prayer life, there should be times of adoration, of praise, where we are praising God and thanking God. And, you know, drifting can look like where we just, we, we stop Stop taking the grace of God. We stop remembering how great it is. And we're not as thankful for it. And we, we take the grace of God for granted. Drifting can look like thinking our sin is not as bad as it is. And that's easy to do in, in Christian culture. Because we look at the world. We look at the world's sin. And what they do. And how they live. And how they treat people. And we say, well, I'm not, I'm not that bad. So my, my pride's not as bad. My lying isn't as bad as what they're doing. My selfishness isn't as bad. Or you know what? Yeah, maybe I look at some stuff on the internet I shouldn't look at. Maybe I'm looking at some videos I shouldn't look at. But I'm not actually physically cheating on my spouse. So it's not that bad. We look at our sin and say, it's not as bad as it really is. And we forget that our sin hung Christ on the cross just as much as everyone else's sin. And as a believer, our sin hurts our relationship with God and breaks that fellowship, no matter how big it is in our eyes. So we have a, a scale of sin in, in humanity. Well, you know, lions, it's bad. You know, it's one of the Ten Commandments, but it's not as bad as murder. Murder's up there. 
In the eyes of God, all sin is, is just as wicked and just as vile and just as repulsive. But drifting can look like, well, my, my sin's not as bad as someone else's sin. Drifting can look like minimizing your pursuit of Christ, where walking with God, pursuing God, is not the top priority of your life. Where we think, well, you know what, you know, walking with God's important, but it's not as important as whatever. It's not as important as my job. It's not as important as finding my next my spouse. It's not as important as whatever. As believers, and Paul tells us in Colossians, as believers, our pursuit of God is the most important thing in our life. It's more important than anything. It's more important than than your career. It's more important than making money. It's more important than your relationships because once we get that in its proper place, everything else takes care of itself. But drifting's like, well, I'm not going to... That's important as it used to be. Drifting can look like pulling away from relationships, especially relationships of children of God. Isolating ourselves. You know, I've told you before, man was never meant to go through life alone. And when I say man, I mean man and woman. Humanity. You were never meant to do life alone. And so that's why when God in the beginning, he looked at Adam and he said, it's all good, except man shouldn't be alone. So he made Eve and everything got ruined. No, uh, he made Eve and made that companion. And now even even because even Paul and I'm going to talk about just marriage because Paul talks later, says, hey, I wish all of you could be like me and I'd be married. But we, we need relationships. We need church family that can keep us accountable, that can encourage us, that can pray for us, that can teach us. But drifting can look like, well, I don't really, I don't need those relationships. I'm going to pull away from those. So drifting can look like a lot of, a lot of different ways. And Jesus knew we would drift. Bible says, you know, in, in Isaiah says, we are all like sheep. Prone to wander. There's a reason that in the Bible God calls Jesus the great, the great shepherd and calls us sheep. Sheep are stupid. So you're calling me stupid? Yeah, but I'm calling me stupid. Sheep left to themselves are going to get hurt and killed and they're dumb. And they wander away. That's why they have to have fences for sheep now. But back in this time they didn't really have fences. So they had shepherds to make sure they didn't wander away. We are all like sheep. Left to ourselves, we're going to drift. We're going to pull away from God. And so Jesus, he wanted to give us an anchor. Something we could cling to. That we would remember frequently and time and time again. Things that we could cling to and remember what he did for us, and to anchor us into the love of God. And so, before the night of his death, he gave a symbolic practice to his apostles that we call the Lord's Supper. The night before his death, him and he and his apostles, they met in the upper room in Jerusalem, and they met to observe the Passover. Now, the Passover was a, a precious time in the life of a Jewish person. Still is today. They still observe Passover now, but it was a time when they were to remember what God had done for them as he led Israel out of Egypt, out of captivity. And so they would get together, and it was a, 
a precious time full of symbolism where they would, they would eat unleavened bread, they would have bitter herbs and a hard-boiled egg, and, uh, you know, not, not deviled eggs, uh, but hey, you know, I think we can southernize it and have a deviled egg on our Lord's Supper plate. Uh, but anyway, and so it was a time for them to remember what God had done for them. And so the disciples, and it took, it took hours. It wasn't a quick meal. It wasn't a, you know, we're going to get together and have a quick meal to have a quick bite. It was a, a precious time where they got together. There were prayers. There was good food. There was good drink. And a, they went through a process where they would, they would pray. They would read some scripture. They would pray. They would read some scripture. They would eat these things. And so the apostles, they go in the upper room expecting to have this precious time with Christ. But instead, he gives them the Lord's Supper. He gives them this symbolic meal to help them remember what he had done for them. And it was a a powerful expression of worship. And from that moment, through generation after generation after generation of believer, it's been passed down to help keep us from drifting. The Lord's Supper is an anchor to keep us from drifting from the life-changing truth of the gospel. Every time we observe the Lord's Supper, it reminds us of what God did for us. It reminds us of the love that Christ had for us. So this morning, as we observe the Lord's Supper, I want it to be an anchor for you. To hold you fast to the truth of the gospel, to pull you away from drifting through the struggles and temptations that the world offers, to anchor us in the reality of the gospel of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 <clears throat> gives us some, some powerful truths about the Lord's Supper. So look there, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to start reading in verse number 23. For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner, he also took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Of me. So Paul, of course, he's writing to the church at Corinth and he's reminding them about the, the practice of the Lord's Supper. And he's, he's showing them some three truths that we need to focus our hearts on as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. And so here's the first truth that he tells us. Number one, remember our need is great. Whenever we observe the Lord's Supper, and there's a lot of debate in Christianity about how, how often we should do the Lord's Supper. Some people uh, do it every week. Uh, some churches uh, do it once a month. Some churches do it once a year. We, we try to do it about four times a year, about quarterly. And it's not a set day. It's not a set time. It's not like every fifth Sunday or whatever. It's just whenever the Lord lays on my heart that we need to, to prepare ourselves. And I do it that way because I think if we did it weekly, it, it would become mundane to us. It would become, you know, commonplace to us. And plus, I like to give the whole service to it. And I can't preach every Sunday on the Lord's Supper. 
Uh, I mean, I could. There's a lot there, but y'all would get tired of it. Uh, and so we really want to focus our hearts on this. That's why we do it kind of quarterly, and we, we dedicate the whole service to it. But when we observe the Lord's Supper, it reminds us of the incredible need that we had. Back in verse number 24 and 25, how many of you have a red-letter Bible? Okay. Are those letters in red? You know what that means? These are Jesus' words. Paul is not telling them some story. He is reminding them of what Jesus said in that upper room the night before his crucifixion. And he tells his disciples, he tells his apostles, this bread, that during the Passover, the, the unleavened bread uh, represented the, the speed that the Israelites had to leave Egypt because the, 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 the salvation of God taking them out of Egypt happened so fast, they didn't have time to uh, let their bread rise. And so if you've ever made bread and you've used yeast, I, I've, I did this uh, last year or a year before. During the pandemic, uh, I got bored and wanted to make bread. And, uh, you know, April had made bread before, but I got bored. I'm like, I, I did a lot of baking. I made cookies and brownies and all kinds. I just got, it's like, why? Because I was bored. And uh, I got bored. I'm like, I'm going to make some bread. And so I, I made two loaves of bread. And, man, one of them turned out perfect. It was so good. I didn't even, we, I put it, covered it in epoxy and I have it on my shelf now. Uh, but it was good. But the second loaf, um, as it was rising, I looked at it, I'm like, oh, it's not rising right. It wasn't rising. So I, I kind of poked it and moved it, and it <laughs> flattened out. So that, that loaf was kind of flat and kind of dense. And so that was the whole point. It's like when you're trying to let bread rise, you can't you know, throw it in your bag and run uh, because it's not going to rise. And so it represented how the bread wouldn't rise because the salvation came so quickly. Jesus says now the bread has a different meaning. Because he would, he would take that bread and he would, he would break it. And he says this bread now doesn't just represent the speed that salvation came. It shows how my body was beaten and broken for you. Then he takes the glass of wine. And he said this, this wine, and during Passover... They would drink four glasses of wine, and each, each glass represented something different. The provision for God, the joy that God gives. You say, why joy? Because you have four glasses of wine, by the time you have the fourth, you're pretty joyful. Uh, but so, the joy that God would give them. And so, it represents all these things. You're going to say, this wine, it no longer represents those things. Now, it represents the blood that I am going to shed for you. And it's important, he says, for you. Because in the Greek, it means... Instead of you. He says, I'm going to let my body be broken so yours doesn't have to be. I'm going to allow my blood to be spilled so yours doesn't have to be. And then twice in those verses, he says that you do this in remembrance of me. In the Greek, the word remembrance means to call into memory a vivid event from the past. But the Greek idea of remembering is different than our idea of remembering. <laughs> you know, me, uh, I saw my mom 
a couple of times this week. Uh, she's up here now. She was visiting her sister because uh, her sister lives up here, and we visited her last week. And so uh, we would sit around and we would we would talk about things that you know we did as as teenagers, um, which I'm not going to tell you uh, because I'm not sure the statute of limitations is up yet. But no. Um, then we would talk about things that we did and, you know, things that we, that me and my brothers and sisters did and things that we said. And we would, and we would just kind of remember, oh, that was funny. The, the Greek term for remembrance is more than just saying, oh, I remember that happened. It's to, to focus on not just the event, but what the event did in your life. How the event changed you. And so every time we observe the Lord's Supper, we are to focus on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and focus on not just that it happened, but what it did for us, how it changed us, how it altered who we are. We are to consider the debt that we owed, that Christ paid through his broken body and his shed blood. We are to to call back to mind the humiliation, the pain the struggle that he endured. Throughout the year, I usually, I mean, I do it more than at Easter, but I like to read the crucifixion story and focus on it. Again, I've told you before, I read a book, I've read it three or four times. The, it's a medical doctor, a Christian man, who's a medical doctor who really went through the medical things that Jesus went through, through the crucifixion. Because I think sometimes we kind of dumb it down. We don't realize how severe it is. We, we have this image in our mind of Jesus on the cross, and we kind of pulled, we kind of think of the, the, the Catholic crucifix, where it's this kind of skinny guy with long hair and a, and a, a did he have long hair? I don't know. I don't care. Uh, I don't believe so because the Bible says man shouldn't have long hair. If you have long hair, I don't care. Do whatever you want to do. Uh, some of you would be happy to have hair. Uh, but anyway, so, uh, you know, we have this idea of this guy on the cross kind of weakly. He's got, you know, some, some blood running down and some blood. No, 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 no. And really the best scene that I've seen that even comes close is the, the passion of the Christ. Where he was, and that isn't even close. It, it, it's, it's better than what we know. But the, the pain, this doctor, he says that through the scourging, they would hit him with the cat of nine tails. And of course, it was a whip that had nine tails on it, but each tail had a, had a piece of metal or a hook in it. And these, these people who were used to scourge these Roman soldiers were extremely skilled at doing this. And they could rip flesh from your body. They, would, they were able to get that cat of nine tails around your stomach and would able, many times, they would open people's stomachs up and just, and their entrails would fall out. They would literally gut them just while whipping them. They would pull flesh from their back. He said that after Jesus had endured that scourge, most people never survived that. But Jesus did. Now, yes, he's God, but he's also man. He said that his, his back would have been opened up where his spinal column would have been open to the elements. You ever had a, a cavity in your tooth and you drink something cold and it hits it? And you're like, oh man, that's got that nerve. Multiply that by about a billion. And your spinal column, your nerves are open to the elements. And then they, they put that rough piece of wood on your back and you've got to carry that. So his ribs would have been, some of his ribs would have been ripped out. 
His, his ribs would have been exposed to the air. Just the tremendous amount of pain that he endured, allowing his body to be broken, his blood to be shed. And he did it for me. Because he loved me. I can't imagine that. And the Lord's Supper reminds me of that. That incredible love. So look, I love, I love my wife. I will die for my wife. I will murder for my wife. I will do to someone else what happened to Jesus, but I don't think I'm going to go through that for her. Like, just, just shoot me in the head. I'll die for her, but don't torture me like that. But Jesus said, I will endure incredible pain and suffering for you. As Jesus talked about his body being broken, he says, I did this for you. He connected his sacrifice to our great need. So here's the thing. Sometimes we think that we, we get this confused. We think the gospel takes bad people and makes them good. It doesn't. The gospel takes dead people and makes them alive. Because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. No hope, no nothing. And Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection, makes us alive in God. We need salvation, and Christ is the only Savior. The atonement of the cross and the finished work of Calvary and the empty tomb is what we focus on during the Lord's Supper. During the, speaking of the Lord's Supper and its meaning, Alan Redpath said, It is the one who has given something for us at Calvary, asking each of us to remember his death, to put at the very center of our Christian experience. It is he who loved us even unto death, calling us out from the busyness and barrenness of all of our pressure and work, that we might wait upon him in the stillness of our hearts and worship him. The Lord's Supper is an incredible picture of God's love for us. But it is just a picture. It's a symbol. You know, Jesus, during his ministry, he often taught using parables and Figurative language. He called himself the door. He wasn't actually a door. He called himself a vine. Not actually a vine. Called himself the bread of life. Not actually bread. He used these, these symbols to show us a spiritual truth. And so the bread and the juice, they do not become the body and the blood of Jesus. They are symbols of the body and the blood of Christ. The bread reminds us that his body was broken for us, that he allowed himself to be brutally beaten for us. It reminds us that God, the cup also reminds us that God left heaven. He put on humanity, lived a perfect, sinless life, and suffered so we wouldn't have to. He absorbed the wrath of God for us through his broken body and his shed blood. The fact that God took on flesh and dwelt among us should really move us. Daniel Aiken said this, he said, Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He is not half God and half man, 
All God and no man. All man and no God. He is not simply a man uniquely in touch with the divine. No, he is the God-man who is like no one else who ever lived. He has always been with the Father and at Bethlehem he came to be with us. Every time we observe the Lord's Supper, we remember that God took on flesh. He allowed his body to be broken. He allowed his blood to be shed for us. Second Corinthians, Paul gives us an incredible truth. He says, God, who knew no sin, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God through the cross. The ones that deserved the cross, us, we were pardoned because the perfect, sinless Son of God died in our place. Through the atoning blood of Jesus, we can experience joy and hope and peace. That's why we, we celebrate the blood of Christ. You know, a lot of people say we have a bloody religion. You know, we sing about the blood of Jesus. We talk about the blood of Jesus. We, we, we are so grateful for the blood of Jesus because without the blood, without the shedding of His blood, there's no remission of sins. So as we observe the Lord's Supper, we remember His broken body. We remember His shed blood. We remember that our need was great. But the second thing we need to focus on is not only do we remember our need is great, we declare that God met our great need. We all have needs here this morning. We need food. We need shelter. Some of you may need a job. Maybe need a place to stay. We all need oxygen. We all have needs. But our greatest need was salvation. Our greatest need was for a perfect sacrifice to be paid for our sins. And through the death, burial, and resurrection, God met our greatest need. First Corinthians, verse 11, verse 26, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. The word show there is a powerful word. It means to declare openly, to publicly proclaim that Greek word is used all throughout the book of Acts as the apostles would go and publicly proclaim the gospel of Christ. Publicly proclaim that Jesus was the Messiah. And as people of God, when we observe the Lord's Supper, we are publicly proclaiming to the world that we were sinners deserving of hell, helpless and hopeless, but God loved us so much that He took on humanity, He came to earth, lived a perfect life, and died in our place, and we are grateful that He did what we could never do. We publicly proclaim that even though we were broken, even though we were deserving of death and hell and the grave, the incredible love and mercy and grace of God came down through Christ and through His death, burial, and resurrection, He met our greatest need. We proclaim that God has met our need. See, the Bible teaches us that there is nothing that we can do in our own strength, in our own abilities, in our own morality to please God. Bible says your righteousness is as filthy rags. And again, 
Sometimes we don't understand the imagery. We think filthy rags, oh, well, that's, you know, I got some shop towels in my house and, you know, I'll wipe my, my hands, my greasy hands or something, or maybe I got a dirty dish towel or something. No, no, no. Filthy rag was the rags that the, the lepers would use. They would wrap their wounds. And those wounds weren't, you know, they didn't have neosporin and peroxide and all that stuff where they could put a clean bandage on. They would just take a rag and wrap it around. And after a while, that, that wound, it would become infected and pussy and full of blood. And they would take that rag off and it's full of infection and disease. That's your righteousness. That's my righteousness. My good works before God is like that. And none of us would ever touch that rag. We're not going to see a rag that's full of infection and pus and disease and blood and go, oh, let me, let me wipe my face with that. We're not going to touch it. We're not going to go near it. The other, several months ago, before we got the cameras in, we, 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 we used to have people all the time coming up in the parking lot, and we put the cameras in because sometimes they would come in the parking lot and do stuff like try to break in. So we finally put cameras up, and I remember uh, they, they really stopped when I put these signs up that said, hey, you're on camera. They stopped coming up here. But I remember one night I got a notice on the camera, and there was somebody out in that parking lot. They were out there for about an hour and a half. So what were they doing? I don't know. The camera's not that good. I'm assuming bad stuff because I did see a lighter keep flicking up in there. So I'm assuming drugs of some kind. But then the next morning, they, you know, they left, and I came here the next morning, and there were some, some rags out there in the parking lot. I didn't get close to those rags, but I'm like, I need to get someone else to go out there with a long stick and get those rags up, because I ain't touching them. Say, so what'd you do? I had Connor do it. Uh, say, why? Because that's what kids are for. To get, and then I, then I made him get a tetanus and a hepatitis shot. But anyway... I, that rag, I mean, it was raining. That rag looked fine, but I'm like, I don't know what's on the rag. I'm not touching it. God says, that's what your righteousness is to me. And we declare, God did for us. We, see, the gospel says, I can't, but Jesus did. And we are declaring it to the world. Third thing we do is we celebrate that he is coming back. Look at verse 26 again. For also, if you drink this, as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death when, till He come. How often are we supposed to do this? It doesn't really say just as often as you do. How long are we supposed to do this? Until God comes back, and we are celebrating the truth that not only did He come as a baby, live a perfect life die in our place, be buried and rise again, but He ascended to heaven, but one day He's coming back to get us. That this world is not all we're going to know. Because look, this world right now, let's be honest, sucks. Gases are up, the inflation's up, disease is up, division's up, everything's, everything's crazy. This world is a mess. And look, I hate to give you a really, I like to give you good, encouraging, biblical truth. Here's the biblical truth we're not going to like. Bible says it's just going to get worse. Worse and worse and worse. How much worse can it get? I don't even want to know. But I do know, no matter how bad it gets, God's promised to come back and get us one day. 
God says, I'm going to return and get you. When we observe the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming that our life has been transformed and we are going to continue doing it until he comes back one day. The Son of God. Bible tells us we don't know when. Not even Jesus knows when. But one day, Bible says the clouds are going to open. The trumpet of God is going to sound. And we who are alive and remain. First of all, the dead in Christ are going to rise. But then those of us who are alive and remain, we're going to look up and see our Savior. And we will be lifted up and meet Him in the air. It's what we call the rapture. Say, when's it going to happen? Could happen today. I don't know when. You don't know when. But I know when it happens, in a blink of an eye, we're gone. So where are we going? We're going to have what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. A, th- a seven-year meal with our Savior. Once we are at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we're not going to have the Lord's Supper. Why? Because it's a symbol of what we're going to enjoy one day. So where are they going to serve at the marriage supper of the Lamb? You know, there's all, I heard a lot of people debate. And all, this is what's going to be there. And the Bible teaches this. Here's what I think. We're going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb. Whatever you want. If you're like, my favorite meal is biscuits and gravy. That's what you're having. Say, what are you going to have, preacher? I'm going to have bacon-wrapped shrimp and scallops and steak and baked potato. All I can eat? Praise God! I think I'm hungry. (laughs) But anyway, we declare that, hey, this world is a mess. This world is hard, but he's coming back one day. One day, we will see God face to face. One day, we will be face to face with our Savior. And that gives us hope for a lot of reasons. Because right now we have struggles, we have fears, we have burdens. But Jesus says, don't worry. One day I'm coming to take them all away. One day I'm coming back and there'll be no more tears. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more loss. Those of us, a lot of you are here, and you have loved ones that are in heaven right now. You've lost a precious spouse, a child, a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, and we mourn them. One day we'll see them again. One day we'll be reunited with them. One day all the pain, all the fear, everything's going to be gone. The Lord's Supper reminds us It's not always going to be this way. A day's coming where everything's going to change. And as we observe the Lord's Supper, we celebrate the truth that this world, it's not all we have. We're just a, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. You can even say, I got a mansion over the hilltop. I don't think you do, but who cares? Fact is, whatever is over the hilltop, it's better than this. This isn't all we have. Before we take the elements, I want to read a little bit further. Look at verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily Eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. This is a stern warning that Paul gives us before we observe the Lord's Supper. 
I want to focus on one word, and it's found in verse 28, examine. In the Greek, it means to put on trial or to question. Now, John MacArthur, about these verses, he says, To come unworthily to communion does not simply dishonor the ceremony. It dishonors the one in whose honor is being celebrated. So as we examine ourselves, we need to ask ourselves a couple questions. First question you have to ask, how's your fellowship with God this morning? How's your relationship with the Father? First of all, if you've never accepted Him as your Savior, if you're here this morning and you don't know for sure that you've accepted His death, burial, and resurrection as the only payment of your sin, this is not for you. This is a ceremony. You don't need a ceremony. You need a Savior. You need to get saved this morning before you thank God for the broken body and shed blood that you haven't allowed to be on your, your account yet. But maybe you are saved. You need to ask, still has my relationship with God? Do you have any unconfessed sin in your life? Are you drifting from God? Are you allowing the struggles of this world to keep you away from Him? To observe the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner means that we have nothing between me and the Savior. There's no unconfessed sin. There's no attitude I'm holding on to. Second question you need to ask yourself, how's your relationship with others? Is there someone in your life, is there someone in this room that you haven't forgiven? You're holding on to bitterness or anger? Look, some of you, some of you married couples, y'all were fussing and fighting and bickering and screaming until you stepped foot on the parking lot. Then it's, hey, brother, bless God. Well, you need to get right with your spouse before you take the Lord's Supper. Why? Because Paul says some of you are sick and some of you are dead because you didn't do right. Maybe there's someone here that you've held a grudge with because for years something's happened. Maybe you're annoyed that someone gets praise for what they do. You've got some anger and bitterness. Whatever is, whatever, and here's the thing. As I'm speaking, whatever the Holy Spirit laid on your heart, that's what you've got to get right. And here's the thing. If the person's here, get it right with them this morning. Maybe they're not here. Maybe you're like, I just got to, my, my, my brother in Christ or my actual family member, I got to get right with them, but I can't right now. Make a vow to God. Confess it to God and say, God, I'm going to get it right as soon as I can. Make sure there's nothing between you and God and there's nothing between you and anyone else. So we're going to have, before we take the elements, we're going to have a time of prayer. And just for you to, to get it right. You need to get up and go to some other brother or sister in Christ, do it. Say, oh, people will think, people, what do people think? People will think, hey, you listen to the Holy Spirit. Woohoo! Wish everybody would do that. But we're going to have Miss Trudy come. She's going to play. We're just going to have a time of reflection, a time of prayer, where we examine our hearts and make sure we are able to take the Lord's Supper in a Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.